what what are we doing Oh, I know. I just, I just wanted to sing hello. Hello. Oh, okay. <laughs> Welcome back to Are Your Parents Proud of You? I'm your host, Matthew Schufreiter, and I'm joined by the sidekick, the man of many missions and talents, Griffin McCorgle. I, I think, I feel like I'm more like a side punch than a side kick. No, you're not. You, no one punches you. Maybe a side elbow. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Anyway. Side headbutt. <laughs> This is not W. Who's our guest? Who's our guest today, Matt? Bart Shadow. Bart Shadow. Wonderful. What does he do? Bart is a Broadway singer and actor who has performed as Jean Valjean in the touring company at Les Miserables. He is also a member of the touring company of the Trans Siberian Orchestra. But Griffin, to be honest, we didn't talk much about that. Really? What? Why? What did you talk about? Well, we talked about growing up and being from Peoria his audition for John Hughes, that's right, and his experience working for Patti Lapone. Oh. Nice. Oh, and we talked about Star Wars. He's a big fan. Oh, well, now you have my attention. <laughs> it took five episodes to get you to listen to this for entertainment. Uh, we recorded- so You're gonna have to start just, just at the top of every episode to get me to focus. You just have to say, Star Wars. All right, Star Wars. We recorded, <laughs> we recorded this conversation on August 31st. So dates and events may have varied. And away we go. Hey, Bart. Hey, Matthew. How are you? Good. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. So, Anybody from Chicago, I will bend over backwards for. I will, I will, I will, I will walk into a 7-Eleven for. I will, I will just. I will do anything for. I will stand in line at a CVS for. It. Well, there you I, go. I love Chicago. I love Chicago actors, and I I'm actually originally from Illinois. So I was going to uh, say you're from uh, Peoria, correct? I am, and it was my dream to end up in Chicago, but I ended up in New York instead. So you know, for some people, that's that could be better, but <laughs> but I'm glad you're humble. <laughs> at this point, I think I should have ended up in Chicago. At this point. <laughs> Um, I'm curious. So, you, like you said, you're in uh, you're in New York right now. How are you holding yeah. up? Well, I'm actually in New Jersey, um, okay. which which people don't acknowledge as a state uh, <laughs> or even a, a land. <laughs> um, I'm in Secaucus, New Jersey. Uh, I worked with Norbert Leo Butts last year in a concert, just as a side. And I told him, I said, I, he said, "Where do you live?" I said, "I live in Secaucus." He said, are you sure you're pronouncing that right? I said, yeah, I've lived there for 10 years, man. He said, I don't know if I would, uh, I don't know if you're pronouncing that right. Plus, it just doesn't sound like a very good place. It sounds like a, like a lung disease or something. Uh, but Secaucus is a really nice little family. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we've got the train station here, and it's literally five minutes away from the Lincoln Tunnel. Oh, wow. So it's very convenient yeah. to get it in and out of the city. Mm-hmm. We had a little downtown area and, you know, um, local restaurants. And so, yeah, but I think Norbert really liked making fun of the, my, my, my Secaucus town that I live in. So. <laughs> <laughs> was, were you there at the, like when all this was like shutting down or not? I was there and I think the last day I was in Queens and Queens was the epicenter, became the epicenter of the virus. And it was on a Thursday, and I was going in to see my friend, um, another a guy, uh, just a real long-time, long-time friend of mine, Doug Storm, 
and he was living in Queens at the time. And it was the last time I was in New York before the quarantine hit. So I think it hit several days later, like the next week. So, and we had a fabulous time. We went to a bar. We, you know, we, we, we had reunited after several, several months. We kind of had a bit of a falling out. So I went to make up with him and um, I said, can I be your friend again? So he said, yeah. So I went to Queens to be his friend again. And we had a great time. We had a great afternoon. And we went to a bar in Queens and there was no one there. And wow. it was like, it, 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 the, sur the surrealness, if that is a word, started to kick in. And this is before, like a day or so before before the quarantine. Um, so that was the last time I was in New York. I have since driven in. I drove in last week to drop off some camera equipment for the show that I'm producing for web series for an actor. And I was very attuned to, because I'm watching this all on the news, whatever news media is reliable at this time, but they always show you, because I, you know, during the riots and all that, I was just like, wow, is every corner of New York City like this? So I'm looking around, I'm going to the Upper West Side, and he lives off Malcolm X Boulevard. And I was just going just to drop this stuff off. And I was like, well, everything looks the same. The only difference is people are wearing masks. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm sure it's not the same. If you live there, the energy is much different. But just going in there and driving, um, I just visibly, visibly didn't notice anything. And by the way, the riots, they act like the, the riots still going on. I mean, I know they're going on in Portland, and but the riots only happened over the course of two days, I think, or something like that. So um, to me, it, it's nothing is certainly back to normal, but I, you know, I expected graffiti and all these places to be, you know, burned down to the ground. I mean, everything you see on the news is like, such, it's so horrific. It's something out of a George Orwell novel, and but I didn't experience that at all. So I was, I don't want to say I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm not saying that anything's back to normal. So please, the audience, don't, don't um, get that wrong. Um, nothing is back to normal, nor may it ever be again. But from a visible standpoint, I was like, oh, good. New York is still here. It's still... It, it was just like a nice thing to know that it's still, it's still thriving. People are still there. Maybe a half a million people have fled mm -hmm. out of the 8 million people that live there. I love New York just as much as anyone else. I feel like I'm a native. I've been there for 30 years now. And I'm also a New York tour guide. So I, I take people to the Statue of Liberty, to Ellis Island, work for um, several different touring companies. And I have such a passion for American history in New York. So to go drive into the city and see that it's still here, the heartbeat is here, the soul is, is still remaining. I have a feeling it's going to come back stronger and better than ever. I was going to ask you that. I mean, the world, the, the theater world has shut down. There's, I mean, besides those few theater companies that aren't even listening to what's going on, they're still doing. Do you hear about that theater company? I think in Wisconsin that was doing like Mary Poppins and they had to shut down, but yet there's, they still said, we're going to come back soon. Don't worry. We just have a few cast members, just, you know, COVID and stuff, but we'll be back. Um, where, I mean, you, you, do you think theater is going to come back even stronger than before? Or do you think it's going to take some time for not just actors to want to come audition, but for an audience to come see a show? I think both. I think it's going to be, like when I was talking to one producer about it and 
he's an award-winning, you know, Tony Award-winning producer. And uh, he said the productions are going to have to be nimble, you know, maybe smaller casts. And, you know, everything is going to change as far as the capacity for the theaters. And uh, I don't think it's going to be full force. Hey, you know, everybody's, you know, descending upon to the city from all the hinterlands in every state. And we're all going to have a big party. And, you know, I think... And Seth Rudesky talked about this in his show in Sirius with Christine Petty, that it may be piecemeal. It's going to be very piecemeal, like maybe a show will open and, you know, maybe there'll be that one show or maybe several shows that will open. And they'll be kind of like a guinea pig experiment sort of thing and say, OK, well, that kind of worked. So let's try another show. You know, let's try let's open up another theater. So I think it's going to be very piecemeal. And but it's going to be a gradual process, and it's not going to happen certainly overnight. You know, we're talking possibly a year before anything get maybe fully running. You know, when the virus hit, we were thinking April or May uh, that the shows would come back, um, um, or early June. But that, of course, that didn't happen. So, how do you are you in the same boat of are you ready to go back to audition for theater once the moment hits, or are you trepidatious of right now? No, I, I I am absolutely ready to do anything, self tape or I am uh I'm I'm more creative now than I've ever been during this time. Weirdly enough, and you don't I, seem you're not the only one. It, that's what seems yeah. so crazy about this. You would think a pandemic, when, maybe just for my sake, when this thing whole started, I was spiraling towards a depression of thinking everything I love is now gone, and then I listened to all my friends and. And they came up with websites or plays or shows or podcasts. It doesn't. It seems like the creativity is now just stronger than probably it's ever been in just a whole new form. I think. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a story about Isaac Newton that he was going to college at the time in in the in, in the United Kingdom, and a plague hit, and he was relegated to go back to home, back home, and. It was during that time where he discovered the theater, the theory of relativity, or uh, it was it was such a creative time during that 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 period in, in European history, um, and incredible advancements in technology and science emerged from that time. Uh, you know, we as a species, like Darwin claims, we are we need to evolve or we die, and if we succumb to this kind of these worldly events and crawl into it, we may have those times where we want to crawl into a, a hole or, you know, uh, a fetal position, but we will survive as a species, but we have to be creative and we have to know that we have to be, um, we are sustainable and we can be sustainable in, uh, despite external events. And we can't be crippled by fear. So, I mean, other populations, other cultures have lived through these things. And we are just part of that history, as far as I'm concerned. So I think we'll come back more creative, uh, more sustainable, um, have more of a survivalist instinct. And anything that comes at us again, we'll be prepared for it. Yeah.
So that's my take. Other people may not feel the same. No, that's well said. And maybe just for my sake, I, I was about to graduate when oh, all wow. this happened. And so like already I have like my whole future of like, crap, what am I going to do when this is over? Here, let's add a pandemic to all this. So maybe from my mindset, that wasn't helping at all. But now that I'm an adult, at least I have like given circumstances of what I can do now. Yeah. Yes. So how, how did you, how did you go about transcending that? Cause you said you went through sort of a depression. I was there a str- event that happened or was it just like you woke up and. I am a germaphobe, especially so when this news of a virus was breaking out, uh, you know, instead of 20 seconds, I was washing my hands for a minute. Oh, like I, it wasn't pretty. And so, like, the fear was really starting to hit me that week of um, it becoming really weird, real, real. And then my school got shut down and, you know, I fell into this depression because we didn't have school for about two weeks as the teachers will, were um, trying to revamp the whole semester. Yeah. Um, and literally, I just I, I was having a phone call with a friend and I she, she said to me, how you're feeling? I said. I'm sleeping in till noon. I don't go to bed till two. I'm mm-hmm. eating like crap every day. I'm not, I'm, it's frozen pizzas at 11 o'clock every night. I'm really just not doing anything. And I said, what have you been doing? And she's an actor and she graduated before me. And she said, you know, I made a website. I discovered I like making puppets. I've been doing my own little puppetry. Um, and I just been trying to be creative. I said, well, that's really interesting. And I've been having more and more conversations with my friends after that. And I just decided to do like a This American Lifestyle podcast and have conversations with people about their experience during this whole pandemic. And it was really creatively fulfilling. I did a whole week about teachers and how they're teaching during all of this. And that was really interesting. There were teachers all over elementary, college, high school middle school, whatever. So it was really interesting for my sake to at least keep my interest going. That's fascinating, especially teachers. Boy, they are just like the, you know, the medical workers and the medical staff and hospitals are, you know, they're they're unsung heroes. And what are these teachers going to do now where the responsibility is on the parents? The parents are so well equipped for this. For you know, my wife and I were just in Ocean City having a vacation, and there's all these kids around. I'm like, shouldn't they be in school? <laughs> these these parents are like, oh, screw it! I don't want to teach you anything. Let's just mm-hmm. take you to Ocean City. Here, here's the swimsuit. Go out on the beach. Get away from me. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so even though I think they start a week later, but uh, that was just something I was making up my mind. But still, I think about these parents. Oh my gosh! And I have a friend in Nashville. She's a close friend of mine from Peoria, Illinois, uh, who I grew up with, and she's got her her husband just passed away. He was a well-known country um, star, um, and he did not pass away from COVID, but he was fairly young. Um, but she had been married before and then she had a young, she has a young daughter, like 10, 11 years old, and he just passed away like two months ago. So she's a widower, uh, with this young daughter, young girl living in Nashville. She's got a great support system, but 
it's like, how, Tara, how are you doing this? You know, how are you teaching your kid, your kids at home, your child's at home? And how I, my hat's off to these parents. I just, everybody, everybody's had to adjust in some way. And, and that's a lifestyle change. And no, nobody more, nobody more than, than parents right now. So I just have such compassion. My child has already grown, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. So, but I can't even imagine what they're going through, you know? Yeah. You so, think, do you think this is like a new normal that we're stuck with? Or do you think this is just a temporarily new normal? Um, boy, it's really hard to say. Um, I think it's a new mindset. Mm-hmm. I think we haven't been faced. I mean, as a generation, I'm, you know, 55 years old. So I've been here half a century. Have I ever experienced like anything like this in my life? No. How am I surviving? Well, I'm just surviving by being creative and, and listening to the medical professionals and doing what I'm told to do to protect myself and protect others. Um, I went through a weird time during this whole virus where I was listening to cons- conspiracy theorists and going, yeah, maybe they are, maybe the hospitals are empty. And then I started thinking, you know what, then seeing friends, friends, friends die. And, and I'm like, you know, let's, I need to really take, we, we need to take this seriously here, Bart. This is, this is something really serious. Maybe it's not, maybe it's something else. It's, it's, it's a very virulent disease and it's, it's very dangerous and I need to be serious about this. And so I think we're all going through, all navigating ourselves emotionally through this. Like, is this real? Is this not real? Is it, is it the government? Is it the whose fault? Is it? We want to pin blame on somebody. And, you know, I mean, I think nobody's been, nobody's had to handle this before. I mean, maybe kings and things like, I don't know if presidents have had to handle this or before in, in, in our country, we had, what it was the uh, wasn't the Black Plague. I was Europe. What was the plague that we talked that we talked about that we got hit so with hard? Spanish flu. Spanish flu. I think it was yeah. Spanish flu. So whoever was um, at the helm, whoever the, was the president at the time, was in the 30s or so. Um, but yeah, we. I think we're just emotionally navigating ourselves through this, but it's a new mindset. I don't know if it's a new normal, but have our lives ever been normal? You know, I mean, you know, when you wake up one morning and you go to work and then you realize that, you know, 50 blocks from you, somebody just flew a plane into a building in your city and you don't know what to do. And your first impulse is to, uh, (laughs) is to run those 50 blocks to the site and help out or you have a friend saying no don't do that this is not the right time you shouldn't do that let's get out of the city is that normal i mean that's what happened to a lot of us um so you wake up every day and you don't know what normal is going to be you know and i am referring to 9-11 because i was there and i was on the upper west side and i was uh I almost risked my life going down to help. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my, my friend literally had to restrain me and say, no, you, 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 you got to get back to your family. So and we did, I did. Um, and now knowing what's happened to those folks that actually volunteered and helped and with the after effects of nine 11 and, 
you know, uh, with what's been cropping up and emerging with the cancers and things like that could have been me. But my first instinct was to help, you know, be of service. And uh, that's just what you do when you, when people are, are, are in need uh, like that and lives are being cost and lost. And so did I wake up thinking, hey, I'm just going to have a great rehearsal today for this play that I'm rehearsing and um, I can't wait to go to work. Of course, I woke up that way. Uh, the day didn't end that way because that was that was uh, that was a pretty monumental day. So we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. That's 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 the Bart philosophy. <laughs> so well said. Don't worry. Get used, get used to a new mindset, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of I want to take it back now. Speaking of parents, like you said, you grew up in Peoria. Um, what kind of kid were you and how did your parents feel about you be an actor? Because you want to start since what? You were in two, you wanted to be an actor. Yeah, yeah, good good research, Matthew. Um, I was the youngest of four. My dad was a blue-collar guy. He worked at a brewery. My mom was a homemaker. We uh, During the time, we were middle class, which was middle class at the time, uh, which was probably when middle class was middle class. So we had I lived in a really nice neighborhood in Peoria, right across from Richwoods High School. Um, and we had a really good life and, uh, I grew up playing dress up a lot and living in a kind of a fantasy world. I was the youngest. So I was always pretending and I was in my dad's coat, overcoat hat on my bike. And, you know, I was always outside playing and, uh, yeah, I was a very creative kid. I didn't really have an outlet for it because it was Peoria. <laughs> And my parents were like, hey, let's put you in a play because they didn't know what a, know what a play was. Yeah. So uh, and then they moved us from Peoria to a small town in Bradford, Illinois, which uh, was about 45 miles west of that. Uh, as a uh, population, 850 people. Oh, yes. So from about maybe 10,000 people to 800 people. So that was quite a culture shock. So that really changed my life. I was there from first grade to eighth grade. Uh, and um that was a completely different culture because they were all farmers, you know? And so I was, uh, I didn't get involved with plays until I mo they moved me back to Peoria when I started high school. And I, I went to a Catholic high school called Bergen, which is now Spalding. And that's when I started getting involved in theater. But I think I've always wanted to be an actor because I was obsessed with television and you know uh all of those uh shows that i watched when i was a kid like i love lucy and the monsters and <laughs> all those uh you know andy griffith and all those shows that were all black and white um uh, you know those old sit those old sitcoms um uh, they were all my friends because i didn't you know they, they were my way of escapism and so i kind of lived in a little fantasy life when i was a kid and I, I just wanted to be a TV star. I just wanted, I, want, I wanted to work in TV. I just wanted to be a TV actor is really what I wanted to be because I was so obsessed with it. That was really my only outlet. Um, but I had so many different um, er, um, interests when I was a kid. I loved pro wrestling when I was a kid. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was, you know, I loved, I was in, I just loved, so. I, I was so involved in so many different things as far as interests and I was a big Star Wars geek and science fiction person. And yeah, I mean, I had a lot of varied interests as a kid. They're all kind of scattered all over the place. And um, 
Um, it was just a way of funneling that, but you know, um, but being the youngest, I think I was probably the most coddled and probably the most spoiled. You know, I got away with stuff that my siblings never got away with. That's why they all hate me now uh, to this day. And <laughs> I was always the star of the family, whatever that oh. means. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I didn't put on like shows and things like that. I just had no outlet for it growing up in a town called Bradford, Illinois. So there was really nothing to do except, you know, throw rocks at cars and, you know, uh, tip cows and <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, I was obsessed with presidents. I was like, I was a weird kid. I was like, mm-hmm. I had my GI Joes. I was, I was, you know, my, my sister would come into the house and she'd see, see a GI Joe hanging from the shame chandelier with fake blood on his neck. <laughs> like, like, what this guy, is there something wrong with my brother? Uh, he might yeah. want, ma. I think it's where time to go. Animals? Where are the dead animals? Uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer, paging Jeffrey Dahmer, paging John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> just you know, looking for dead bodies. And yeah. I just had a really overactive imagination, and I didn't know how to funnel it. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to channel it, but I just channeled it. You know, I was and I read. I was a voracious reader, Matthew. I read books all the time. But what I would do is I would know that a movie was coming out, so I would read the book. Mm-hmm. and then see the movie <laughs> you know so i was like, obsessed like that I, I had to read the book first and then you know read and so and then and i was obsessed with star wars and i took my parents to see star there was so much hype before star wars came out in 1977 whatever 76 and the only way i knew about it was through these science fiction magazines that would show up at this drugstore because that was my i went to the drugstore and bought these magazines and i that's how i knew about star wars and it was going to be a phenomenon. I mean, Star Wars is, I, was going to be the next big thing, even back then. And so I drug my whole family to see Star Wars when it came to Peoria, which was only 45 minutes away. And I was, I, we was the Rialto, called the Rialto Theater. And, you know, it was old style theater. And I'll just never forget seeing the, the film for the first time. And um, we came out of the theater. And my parents were like, that was the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. I just didn't get it. Tank, did you get it? No, I was a piece of shit. And I was like, this is Star Wars. This is like the new Citizen's Kane. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And it did become one of the greatest films of all time. And I was right. Um, and I would I would get the Star Wars soundtrack, which was on LP. Uh, if you kids was, I was a record player, dude. I was a rec- I, I played records back then, but um, the John Williams soundtrack, and I would like <laughs> scratch it up to like Luke's theme. And you know when Luke is standing in Tatooine and he's looking at the what are three suns or like mm-hmm. sunset, I would look over my 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 second you know uh, floor bed bedroom over the our acre of land pretending I was Luke Skywalker and the theme would be playing and I would well up in tears and get me the frick out of here man get me out of Tatooine get me off this planet so so I did Matthew I did thank God but see if I didn't have those dreams if I didn't have Luke Skywalker I wouldn't have ended up on the big Broadway I think you just found a monologue for yourself <laughs> Like, that was great. <laughs> I have since told that story before in a show that I actually did in Peoria. 
and um, yeah, people people loved it because they just because a lot of a lot of kids your age too mm-hmm. just love Star Wars and they can definitely relate to Luke and his plight of growing up in a small town and just wanting to get the frick off that planet for new adventures. And that was, I think that's the universal appeal of that character and uh, looking for new adventures. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's so universal, man. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Speaking of new adventures, um, you reminded me, you reminded me of like a young Anthony Michael Hall. And in my research of you, I saw that you auditioned for him for to be the character by him in the breakfast club. I did. Um, like, first of all, huh? And huh? And wow. How did that came to be? That came to be because, well, I look like Anthony Michael Hall at the time. And um, I kind of still do, even though he's probably fatter than me uh, um, and taller. But um, yeah, so I was in Chicago auditioning for something. It was my first big audition. It was for one of those combined audition things, you know, Matthew, for the audience that doesn't know it, the actors would go to a big combined audition and theaters from all around the area or the country would go there and cast actors for their season. Mm -hmm. And they would cast like young actors or interns for their season. And so I happened to do this thing for the first time. I went with a friend up there um, and I prepared, I, I was supposed to do a classical monologue, a, uh, you know, monologue from a classic play. So I decided to do a Moliere play. And uh, I think it was a misanthrope or something like that. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of Moliere. And um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I literally went in with that audition and I completely tanked the audition. But there was a casting director. It was John Hughes casting director for... Breakfast Club, and I think for all of her his films for Vacation and all that, he had already done Vacation and all these other films. And I got home and I was like, "Well, I take that audition." Felt horrible about it, and because uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I did was never classically trained. Um, and got a call, and they called. They asked if I wanted to come back to Chicago to audition for this film called The Breakfast Club, for a director named John Hughes. And uh, and I said, "Yeah, sure." I didn't know what I was doing. And um, I guess they probably at the time they just sent me a, a script or a scene. And uh, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, Matthew. I was probably a real, I had a great look and I was, a, I was a good little actor. I had, I had some initial talent. Um, and uh, so it was the scene that was cut from the film um, where he's talking about commit, committing suicide. He's got this uh, plaster Paris or elephant or something like that. In his locker, I forgot. They cut it from the film, but anyway, it's the character of the nerd, and uh, you know, it's beautifully beautiful. The film is the film is such a perfect film. But I read for John Hughes. I I went up there with my brother and my aunt Noni and my mom, and uh, they dropped me off into this building, and I saw another kid who had a briefcase, and I was like, "Whoa, this kid has a briefcase." This is serious because I don't own a briefcase. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these kids were like, they were on their shit. They were well represented. They were all represented by Asians. And I was like, I'm this kid from the farm. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. So I met John Hughes and I read this monologue for him. And uh, I have told this story in the past to another person, actually on a radio show. 
Um, and John gave me some notes and um, I took the pen off his desk and I was writing notes on my script. And um, I finished the audition and, and I, I was like in a daze. I didn't know what I did. I have no idea, like most actors, what the, what the hell did I just do? Did I just tank that? I probably did. I didn't know if I tanked it or anything like that. And it, my whole family was like, how did it go? I was like, I don't, I don't know. And they were at a bar drinking across the street or something like that. <laughs> and, and they're like, Bart, you look really confused. And I was like, what are you looking at? And they said, um, I just took John Hughes' pen. <laughs> what, uh, what do I do now? <laughs> I, stole, I stole John Hughes' pen for the Breakfast Club audition. <laughs> That's the only thing I got out of it. And I remember seeing the film years later, and, um, uh, and it was such a perfect film. Uh, but of course, that would have changed my life and my career. But he had already cast Anthony Michael Hall in Sixteen Candles and Vacation. And so I don't even know if I even had a chance. But, you know, just to be seen by him was uh, I'm, I'm still into this day such a huge fan of him. And I think we lost a great one there. You know. And was that weird being in the room? Because like you said, you don't you didn't know the name John Hughes at that age, right? No, I really, I didn't. I think, I think if I did, I would have pissed my pants. Yeah. So I knew he was somebody important. I knew this was a big audition. I knew it was for a big film. Mm -hmm. But you don't even know the capacity of what this is going to be. One of one of the greatest films of all time. One of the most influential films of all time. So it's probably better that I didn't know. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. I lived my life mostly like that. So, and I'll go into projects and. And see now I get now I'm like getting really wise and it's like now I'm gonna research everything. <laughs> now who's this person? Oh, they have five Tonys. See, I wish I wasn't like that. I would be, you know, I wish I was, but but then I then I go in with anticipation, like, oh god, this is a really huge audition right now. So um, but yeah, just having that opportunity, and he was such a kind person to from what it was just it was just him and I. It was just there wasn't even the casting director there. So I don't even know what it was considered a pre-read at the, those days. I was maybe 16. So that was like 76, 1976 at the time. Um, 70, yeah. Uh, oh, no, no, 70, no, it was 80, 81. I think it was 80 or 81. Um, and so I don't know how they did auditions back then, but that might have been a pre-read where the, the director and the writer brings actors in um, with a I don't, I don't know how it worked, but it would have been a life changer for me, but at least I have that story. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a funny story. I, I'm surprised you didn't sell the pen or something. I don't even know what I did with the pen. You oh know, my, my God. The Joe that I hung, he, she got rid of my $6 million man. She got rid of all my lunchboxes of all the Planet of the Apes dolls. I don't know where they went. Somebody has all of my tchotchkes from all those days and John Hughes pen. Somebody has John Hughes pen. So if someone's so, listening to this podcast and they know where that is, email <laughs> us at, no. Somebody's uh, writing John Hughes' pen right now. Yeah, and, it's, and it still works. It still works. Yeah, after, you know, 30 years or something. I don't know. Um, so you went to college uh, for theater, right? And then, But then you dropped out after the third year. Uh, who Was that your decision? And no, I dropped out twice. I made sure I dropped out twice, Matthew. So. Oh, yeah, I try to do it right. So I make sure that I join a fraternity and then move in the, return, in the fraternity house 
and then get groomed for president and then like party all the time and just do theater and don't care about my grades. I made sure I did that first. Mm -hmm. And, and then my girlfriend broke up with me. So I make sure that happens too. Um, and then, uh, and then I made sure that I left that school and then I hitchhiked home. Um, and that was at Western Illinois university. Mm -hmm. And so that was about a year of my college and I took a year off and went to St. Louis where my parents were living and was licking my wounds there and then decided to enroll at Southern Illinois University at Owensville and then did three years there and studied theater pretty hard there, um, played leads and things like that. And then after the third year, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Sorry, I'm done. I have learned everything I want from all of you assholes. Um, and literally went across the river to St. Louis and auditioned for an equity theater called, uh, it was uh, out of the Muni. It's called Theater Project Company. And they were looking for an equity, a, a, a troupe of actors, four or five actors to do all their children's plays and, uh, and travel middle schools, high schools, and, and, and uh, uh, kindergarten, things like that, and do plays. And also perform in their main stage productions. So that was my first audition after I dropped out of SIU. I booked it. And then three years, and I got involved in St. Louis Theater. And then I got my equity card when I was like freaking 22, 23 in St. Louis. So I'm not recommending for people to drop out. I'm recommending for people to stay in school and get your degree and get your master's or whatever you want to get um, and study, study, study. Um, I felt like I was ready because the, I, I was learning everything from my instructors. So I was ready to move to the next level. And my fellow colleagues, my fellow students weren't taking, they were not taking the work seriously. And, um, and I'm also a commitment phobe. So I, uh, don't stay with many things very long. Um, <laughs> so I don't tell my wife that. No, she knows. Oh, <laughs> of course I'll stay with her forever, ever. But, um, I have an issue with that. Sometimes when I've had it with things, I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. Thank you very much. So. That's something I'm working on. But um, at the time, it was right for me, and I got very lucky, and thank God I was pretty talented, and thank God I, I booked that. And that led to a year's worth of work and performing with professional actors on the main stage, and then that led to more theater in St. Louis and then moving to New York after that. So, How, how did your parents feel when you said to them, I'm done with college and I want to do this full time? Well, this happened at Western Illinois University where I, where I went to the fraternity, and I of the fraternity and um, I was literally flunking out and my parents were very concerned and I got cast in this madrigal dinner thing where I played the fool and I was I had such a blast it was a lot of improv it was a life changer for me I wasn't even I was barely going to classes but I was just putting everything I could into this character this fool character and I put 100% into it, had an incredible review in the paper. And that was the linchpin that said, and it was, the, it, was the, I, it was the most fun I ever had. And I said to my parents, I called them up and I think they came up for dinner. And I said, I, this is what I have to do. I, I was studying broadcasting at the time, mass communications. So because my mom was said, have something to fall back on. Because I've had your, your other guests have said that as well. And your other guests... I think he said, that is 
pretty much short-term language for you're going to fail. I think he said that. I remember one of your interviews. That's very well put. And my mom, who is like not a practical person at all, I can't believe it came from her mouth that she said that. Um, And so I decided to take the major of mass communications and broadcasting because I wanted to, because I'm kind of a, like yourself, I mean, not a frustrated um, interviewer, but I do like interviewing people and being sort of a, uh, a a commentator or something like that on television really fascinated me. So the magical dinner was the game changer for me. And that's when I told my parents and they were really supportive. They're like, Bart, whatever you want to do, whatever is going to make you happy. And so I didn't know anything about conservatories back then. I didn't know anything about like, you know, Webster and St. Louis or, uh, any of the great conservatories or like Carnegie Mellon. I was so not knowledgeable. And so my dad found me a school in Denver. I don't know how we found it. And it wasn't very reputable, but he said, here, Bart, here, you can go here if you like. I mean, he was such, you know, my dad knew nothing about this. What a sweet man to do that. Or I should have been taking it upon myself to look for the conservatories and audition for those conservatories. Um, But I didn't take it upon myself to do that. Uh, even though I was serious about acting, but I just didn't feel like I had the resources. So that's kind of where I was. So my parents were, have always been hugely proud and very supportive. And I think, they, you know, it's paid off in dividends. Yeah. Were they okay with you going to um, New York? Yeah, they lived in Pennsylvania at the time, so they were only a couple hours away. So, okay. yeah, it was just a, it was just a, a, a pretty easy trajectory. From, uh, they just wanted me to be happy. And uh, yeah, uh, literally my first gig was a cruise ship gig. And then after that, I, my first gig was Carnegie Hall. Wow. So I, yeah, with Rosemary Clooney, who's since passed. It was Bing Crosby, even though Bing Crosby music. But um, I was with a group called Wise Guys, and I, I met them on the cruise ship. And, and one of their guys backed, um, uh, had to leave the group, and they had been together for a while. And I was a performer on a cruise ship, and these guys were guest uh, headliners. And if you guys know Jim Caruso from uh, uh, Cast Party at Birdland, he was the head of Wise Guys, and he's the one that befriended me. We became friends. He said, Bart, you have an amazing tenor voice, and would you like to join the group after you get off the ship? And I said, yes. And so I literally spent the rest of my contract learning all of the – it was the three-part tight harmony with these guys – and uh, I learned it just by a tape and there was no music written. I learned it all by, by ear and I came in rehearsed and our first gig literally was Carnegie Hall. We did yes. Carnegie Hall twice in two, in two months. So uh, it was, I was thrown into it very quickly and thrown into that cabaret world very quickly, meeting people like, you know, Adam Gettle and Michael Feinstein and, you know, Liz Calloway and Hampton Calloway, all the greats. Um, I was introduced to in that world uh, for a year. I was with them, and uh, it was a whirlwind. Of uh, uh, it was a great way to be a young, uh, you know, twenty-eight year twenty-eight year old in the in the city, being exposed to some really really talented people. And you know, I mean, you're you're off of Carnegie, you're in Carnegie Hall, and Liza Minnelli and Michael Feinstein are sitting there looking at you. It's like whoa, whoa. Yeah. so it was pretty. 
it was a quite an entree into the New York cabaret world that I was thrown into with Jim Caruso. And then after that, um, the, the, the group disbanded. And then I did um, start doing what I was supposed to do for the rest of my life, which is musical theater. Yeah, what, yeah, did you? So, like you said, you wanted to just be in films and TV as a kid. Yeah, did, was singing ever a thing at all? No, 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 at all. I mean, I love to sing, mm. but I wasn't trained. I was trained in Peoria. Um, I got some training there, and I got some training in college when I was going to college. Um, but you know, I would sing to Journey and Bob Seger. And I grew up with Elton John and the Doobie Brothers, and I grew up with all those bands. I mean, uh, music was always playing in my house. It was it was the eighties, man. I mean, I was listening to all those bands, and then I got into the English stuff and Depeche Mode. And but I was always singing. And my sister, my sister, and my brothers could sing well, uh, but, but my, I just I really developed my voice. But it was never musical theater. When I was in high school, I started to get involved with musical theater. I started listening to like soundtracks of like Camelot with Robin Goulet while I was listening to Dan Fogelberg from his Phoenix album because Dan Fogelberg is from Peoria. So I was listening to Dan Fogelberg and then literally taking it off the record player and putting on Robin Goulet. And that's how I developed my voice by just singing to Dan Fogelberg. And then, and then, you know, if ever I would leave you, I mean, like imitating all these singers, and that was—I'm <laughs> a, I'm a pretty good mimic. So, yeah, um, that's how I kind of got into my singing. But uh, you know, my first show, Civil War, Matthew, and I've since talked to the director, so Nick Corley. I'm working on a project with him, and they were looking for anti-musical theater people. Mm. They were, and they brought in guys from Nashville and studio singers, and and nobody who sounded musical theater so my first broadway show was literally guys who sang rock mm. country blues all they all played guitar they all were singer songwriters and we all sang up in the rafters you know like larry gatlin would say you guys sing tenor to a dog whistle <laughs> <laughs> we sang so friggin' high, and that's why you know. And I and I can see, you know, I can do all the pop stuff, and I can sing super high, and how we're all singing high C's in the show, mm-hmm. and and I looked like a Union soldier, you know, Union soldier at the time, and and so yeah, it was called Civil War, and uh, and so I have since developed my voice. So I went from going being cast in a Broadway show as like a pop singer, a rock singer. To now, I study bel canto technique with my teacher from Met, and I'm really into classical stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went backwards. Instead of starting classical and then learning how to do pop, I kind of went the other way. When you did Civil War, and you said it wasn't theater people, it was rockers and all that. In your yeah. mind, did you think, oh, this is what Broadway is like? Um, no. I knew this is where Broadway is going. Hmm. This is where Broadway is going. Broadway, even though it was Frank Wildhorn, but but look where it's gone. It's gone, you know, I mean, you still have the classic shows like King and I and South Pacific. And, you know, I mean, sometimes I go into auditions and they're like, Bart, you're singing too much, man. Hmm. Just stop singing so much. You know, it's really been distilled down to 
people who just can barely even carry a tune. I mean, there's no vibrato in their voice. It's all straight tone. And so that was to start with Frank Wildhorn stuff, I think was, you know, and of course there's hair, you know, there's musicals like that where you didn't require, you know, legit voices. So, but I think with the onslaught of Frank Wildhorn stuff, with the exception of Scarlet Pimpernel, which had to be, but you know, Jekyll and Hyde, it's, it still had to kind of have a musical theater thing. Um, the Civil War was a major departure for Frank in regards to that music. So, but there was always Les Mis, and Les Mis was always going to be there, and you needed major singers for that. Yeah. But I always knew you had to be a major singer. And I knew I had the chops. Mm-hmm. You know, and I went from there, from Civil War to Les Mis, to playing mm-hmm. Valjean. So, um, so I knew I had the chops for that kind of, that kind of rock opera mm-hmm. sort of style. You know, now it's even more distilled down with like Spring Awakening and the Green Day musical American Idiot. And, you know, it's it's all very distilled down into pop and rock. And, you know, you're very if if you have classical training, you're very seldom called upon to use it unless it's a revival of some sort. You know, yeah. Does that is there a fear that you have even now after 30 years of Broadway? You know, like what still scares you now at your age, even though you've done the touring and the and the Tonys and all that. Do you do you ha- what still scares you? Uh that's a great question, Matthew. Um, maybe I don't know. I I don't think I'm significant, or I want to be relevant. And I think you have to be in this business. You have to really, you have to really self promote and get yourself out there. I don't care how old you are um, these days. I mean, I'm always working. I'm always doing something. I'm always working on new material. Uh, but it just scares me. Um, it's, you know, I don't want to get into personal. Well, I mean, I guess I can get into personal stuff. It scares me to leave something behind like a, like a personal relationship that it's not been resolved. Like, you know, um, I'm estranged. I'm estranged from my son. I've been estranged from my, from my son for like five years now. I've never told anybody this. Um, and I don't want to leave this earth without having a relationship with him. Does that have anything to do with the business? Not really. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in the business. Um, but it has, I, I just don't want to leave this earth with broken relationships. That scares me to leave this earth with things that are like, unsaid and undone um that scares me the most i want to be able to resolve those things so it's a really good question and uh thanks for asking that because it makes me very emotional just thinking about it no i've never asked that i've never had to answer that you know have anything with being you know in this business we all want to be we all want to be noticed and this is you know we all want to be acknowledged and it's our greatest need to be acknowledged and recognized it's a human need it's a human want and we all want it and we all get love getting pats in the back and we all want to be treated with kindness and respect mm-hmm. and uh and and it starts with all of us doing mm-hmm. that to ourselves and to each other um 
And I'm getting to a point, the older you get, you realize like, God, why did I have a fight with that person? <laughs> why did I break up that relationship? You know, why, why did I hang on to being right so much? Mm -hmm. Why did I hang on to that idea of being right? Um, you know, why did I hang on to that addiction? Why mm -hmm. did I hang on to that codependency? Or why did I hang on to the drama or the thoughts? And why did that have such control over me? And, uh, and you know what? And it scares me to sleep this life with those things still hanging over me and still control. So. Um, when I, I was doing a show a couple years ago, um, I was doing the Adams family of all shows. And this one day I had no class, no work. I wanted to go see my grandfather. And at this point, he was in hospice. He was battling Alzheimer's and all that. And for just for some reason, I just thought this, I don't know how much longer he's going to have left. He's 89. Um, I made this commitment to go see him. And that, that I think up at that point, I didn't see him for eight months because he lost his ability to speak and walk. And I, just the idea of him, like where he was to where I remember him when I was even younger, I that was, I couldn't do it. And but I thought, God, the longer I go on without seeing him, I, if one day when he does pass, I'm going to have so much regret. Not my fault, of course, but if I, I will probably be battling that idea of like, I never saw him again. And I saw him for like 15 minutes and, you know, he's mumbling and all that. And that was really hard. And I just quickly just thanked him for all he did, not knowing if he was going to die or not, um, and left. And sure enough, five days later, he passed away. And for some reason, I just, being very upset, of course, I, for some reason, I just thought, well, thank God I had that moment of closure. Maybe if that was a sign of saying, you know what, you did it, he, you had this closure, now he can go now. Um, so even to this day, that still holds dear to me that at least um, that's the fear that I don't say goodbye to someone. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really special about uh, saying my father passed away in 2005. And um, it's a really great gift to be able to uh, uh, say goodbye in that way, or to say goodbye to anybody to make that transition, to help them along with that transition. I think it's one of the greatest uh, gifts you can give another person or to share with another person is to help them along with that transition. So you were there for that. And that's really, it's very special. It's hard at the same time, but it's, it's a really special thing. So yeah. Um, yeah. I had a, we, I had a family member who wasn't able to say goodbye when my father passed and uh, it's, 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 it's been, it has that event. This is why it's so important. That event can break up families mm -hmm. uh, because of the traumatic effect it had on her. And it wasn't her fault at all. Um, and, but she just wasn't able to make it in time. And so, um, and so, yeah, that can be, that can be really traumatic. I know how important it is. So, yeah. Thank you for uh, sharing. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, I do, though, I need to ask, uh, before we continue on any further on, um, you did war paint mm -hmm. the last six weeks yeah. um, with the Patty Lapone. Yes. The um, 
the stories I've heard about her. I, I have to, <laughs> on, a, on a brighter note, uh, the stories I've heard about her or are where, you know, she's very in demand and she has a system. Um, but you say otherwise. You said that she was generally a very nice person to work with. Um, was it weird coming in during the last six weeks of her run? Uh, yeah, you just got to keep everything. Open. Well, number one, I was glad to have a job. And, um, and uh, number two, I knew, what I, I knew what I was getting into. Uh, I had nine weeks, but um, literally after the first day of a couple of days of rehearsal, the company manager came out to me and said, Bart, uh, we're going to close down three weeks earlier because Patty's hip. And it's like, okay, well, I said, great, I'll just make the best out of it. And I did. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and literally in the audition room for the callback, Michael Greif was like, listen, I hope you don't mind moving some set pieces around in the show. And I said, I move furniture around in my house all the time. <laughs> my wife doesn't care. But I'm getting paid for it with you guys. Absolutely. <laughs> so why would I mind moving set pieces around on a Broadway stage with Patty LaFone and Christine Iverson? Uh, and so, and so I got the job, but you know, it was one of those, I didn't have to sing a note barely. Uh, mm. and, um, all my scenes were with Patty and I, I just had, I just had another podcast interview called why I'll never make it with Patrick Oliver Jones, who's a friend of mine. And I, I went into great detail about what it was like to work with her. And, um, and just briefly, you know, um, I, uh, I, I met her for the first time 45 minutes before I went on stage with her and <laughs> she was in her nightgown and, and she came on stage. The, the curtain was up and, and, she, and I was blocked in a certain way. I called it Patty proof. And uh, because she's small mm -hmm. or I should say she's diminutive. She's very diminutive. And I was playing an attorney who was delivering bad news to her Um you know, and it was, it was a, it was a very contentious scene with her. And I was, as an attorney, I was trying to maintain, and, and, and there was an underlying, uh, um, uh, Jewish racist, um, anti, anti-Jewish, um, feel to the scene, which I thought was really important to bring out. Um, I was delivering her bad news that she couldn't get property. She wasn't able to obtain property because she was Jewish, but I didn't really say it in the scene. And it was a really, it was a tough scene for the character for her. Uh, but, you know, we, I rehearsed the scene. I rehearsed it with the stage management. I was blocked a certain way. I couldn't, I, I had to stand like a certain, like a 90 degree angle. So the light would hit her at a certain spot. And uh, I can tell you, I never got any of those cues right uh, by the end of the <laughs> was, I was still getting notes by the last performance. And people were like, Bart, I can't believe you took that. I cannot believe. And I was being, the stage manager was, was uh, Trip Phillips. Trip Phillips? Yeah, Trip, his name was Trip. He's stage managed like every freaking Broadway show. And he's brilliant. And, uh, and I did not mind taking notes from Trip because he's brilliant and he's been working in the business for a long time and he knew the show well. And you know what? I went in and said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you need, sir. But I still brought my own spin to the characters and they were loving it. They loved the fact that I brought my own thing to it. Um, even though it was just little, little cameos. I could play like five different roles in the show. Um, but Patty literally said in the first day when I backstage, we were rehearsing the scene. 
And she said, listen, Bart, I don't really know. I didn't, I've never Googled you. I, I didn't Google you, so I didn't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've done. I said, Patty, doesn't matter. Let's just do this. We got a show to do. I'm going on with you. So um, she was so kind to me. And the last performance, when the show, sh uh, the final performance, the curtain closes, the whole cast, we usually have a big group hug or people grow that hug each other. Literally no one went to Patty. And Patty and I looked at each other through the sea of people. And she gravitated to me and I gravitated to her and I gave her a big hug and thanked her for the time. But literally nobody hugged Patty. It's like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> this poor thing. Um, either they were completely afraid of her or something. Uh, but listen, <laughs> I wasn't a part of all the whole thing that happened before. Uh, all I know is what I experienced. So what I experienced was nothing but, you know what? I think she just... And, and listen, I was working with, they're brilliant actors. There's brilliant actors in that cast. Everybody was on their game, a game. And I'm not saying that nobody was not doing their job. Everybody was doing their job. But, you know, I had the benefit of being a new guy and I was a fresh face and um, I had all this energy and I was gung-ho and, and, and I'd come re recommended by one of the guys in the cast. Like, you're going to love Bart because I did Dracula with him. His name is Chris Hope. And then Doug Sills was like, you're going to love Bart. Doug, Doug's the one that left, which put Chris up to his spot and then which opened up the spot for me. And so they were both like, Bart's wonderful, Bart's wonderful. So they, they all were very kind and kind of paving the way to say, you're in good hands. He's not going to screw up the show for you. So John Dossett was wonderful to me. And they were very complimentary of like, Bart, you know, thanks for just kind of taking the ball and running with this. And thanks for just doing your own thing. Thanks for bringing your own creativity to this role. I think they really appreciated it, that I wasn't like this talking head. You know, I came in with certain characters and accents, and and they loved it. They loved it. They appreciated it. And so I think Patty just appreciates the work and people who come in and do the work and that there's no drama. And, you know, what I love about Patty, too, is she had this level of intimidation that that she probably didn't think that she was doing, but subconsciously she was. I mean, as good actors, we do research where we research like possibly like, what's my character's favorite song? Like during that time period, what would that character be listening to? Like maybe Irving Berlin or some, some composer during that particular time. Cause it was, you know, it, it spanned 20 or 30 years the play did. So she had a certain perfume that she used that I know that she sp picked specifically for her character. And you knew when Patty was in that building because you that smell would just waft up to the third floor. <laughs> and you, once you smelled, you're like, oh my God, she Patty's in the building, Patty's in the building. <laughs> so there was a level of intimidation where was that purposeful? I don't know. But if it was, it, it was brilliant mm -hmm. because it certainly said, listen, I'm leading this company, you know, and Patty, and I don't think Patty would mind me saying, because I, I would say stuff to Patty and say, what are you doing on Mother's Day? I'm saying, I'm going to get drunk off my ass. And he, she just loved that kind of stuff. She didn't care because I just would say whatever's on my mind. But Patty would literally, you'd see her perform the same show every night. Of course, it was brilliant every night. And then get off that stage and be like, motherfucker. She was in such pain. Such pain. 
how in the hell she couldn't continue on with the show because she was just excruciating pain. But she'd get on that stage and deliver, just deliver every single night. So I think her standard of excellence is so much higher than it's than the rest of us. Mm. I think she demands that with everyone she's working with that she's going to share a stage with. I'm not saying that I met that. I'm just saying that I've got a pretty high standard too. I got, I, I got a pretty high standard about the way I work and about the research that I do and about, you know, my level of commitment. And I'm not saying that no, that everybody in more paint was, was their top notch people. Um, so I don't know where the stories come from. All I know is I didn't experience them. I did hear stories about the beginning in Chicago. Uh, but you know, when, especially women, when women are in that kind of position and they ask a question and they're cu maybe curious or they're actually questioning character choice, then their label is difficult sometimes. And I think that can happen with people like that. And then this filters and then it, the telephone game happens. But listen, I wasn't there in the beginning stages. Maybe things settled down. But I was also there when she was in, in incredible pain. Mm -hmm. And she could have taken it out on me if she wanted to. She was the star of the show. She could have been, we did, we did, I did have one scene where I stepped on her line and she gave me a look like, oh my God. <laughs> like I, I was, I, she just like ripped out my heart and she was putting it on a platter and like sprinkling, um, you know, Cajun seasoning on it. <laughs> ready to feast on it. And I was like, shit, that's never going to happen again. Um, and it was just a misstep. It was kind of an overlap of, and I, but I kind of got the tail end of like, whoa, I know what will happen. I've seen, I saw understudies go on who were blowing laugh lines with her. And, um, and it was, it was embarrassing to watch number one, cause they shouldn't have blown it. But it was something that she just would be like, absolutely no excuse for. Wow. No excuse for. So I just, I, and, I, and my, my stuff wasn't even laugh lines. It was just, I just overlapped her once and she just gave me this look. Like, and then she would pause. Like, are you finished? Pretty much. After stepping on my fucking line. And then she would. <laughs> <laughs> but she's great. But she's great. But she's talented and she's wonderful. It is freaking amazing but you know i'm not saying there's no room for error there is room for error you know especially with me coming in i was well rehearsed by michael greif and her assistant johanna they were wonderful and michael was very hands-on and so but you know not every performance is going to be the same mm -hmm. um but that was i mean was did that scare the shit out of me yeah a little bit um <laughs> But, you know, I wasn't going to lose my job over it. You know, I think I wouldn't apologize to her or something like that. Um, I made sure I owned up to it. Absolutely. You know, I think she respects that. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what horror stories you've heard, but, you know, maybe they were justified. I don't know. I don't know. Well, speaking of justify, we're going to justify your ga your gaming skills. Oh, geez. Here we go. Okay. With uh, time for two. Uh, you know how this works. Two minutes on the clock. Yeah. All the best icebreaker questions in the world. Okay. Uh, 
there's no right, no wrong. You ready? Yeah. All right. Here we go. In four, three, two, one, go. What's something you've tried that you will never, ever try again? Uh, jumping out of a plane in tandem. <laughs> Things you buy most often at a grocery store. Almond peanut butter. Almond, almond butter. Almond butter. Uh, is a DJ just someone who's good at iTunes? N no, he's good at going. <laughs> uh, what Disney film best describes your life? Frozen. There you go. Uh, what is your name? Art Matthew Chateau. What is your quest? To follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far. <laughs> what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Uh, velocity, 5.4 miles per hour. Beautiful. Um, Ron Burgundy or Ron Swanson? Don't know who Ron Swanson is, because so I'd rather read Ron Burgundy. And I there love you go. Uh, did Hans shot first? Did Hans... The Han, the Han Solo shoot first? I think he did, and he shouldn't have, because now Harrison will never see Harrison Ford again. There you go. Uh, are you a listener or a talker? I feel like today I'm a talker, but usually I'm a really good listener. Yeah. Uh, favorite Beatle? Uh, um, George McCarthy. Is it George McCarthy? Is that right? Paul, Paul McCartney? No, I said George McCarthy. George, George, not Paul McCarthy, George um, Harrison? Thank you. And that's how we end it. George McCarthy. Oh, boy, that's your, that's the future president right there in uh, Ringo, 2024. And Ringo Lennon, too. Ringo Lennon, I love that guy. There you go. Well, um... Oh boy, we're gonna keep that in, um, George. That's never happened before. See, this is what happens when I don't get my meditation in. Oh, there so. you go. Wow, wow. Well, Bart, before we go, I have one final question. Yes, uh, sir. Which is, uh, are your parents proud of you? Yes, they're extremely proud, and they they are more proud of me than the rest of their children. <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> Bart, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was so much fun. Matthew, you're amazing. And thank you so much. Well, that was our conversation with Bart Chateau. And it's also good to note that Bart was also a producer and one of the actors performing with the New Rooks Virtual Play Festival that our former guest, Kevin Pollock, created and produced. I hope everyone has been listening, watching those performances, because Griffin, they are really good. They're so talented. Yeah. The writing and the acting, it's, it's, it's a whole lot of fun, and I hope um, people have been enjoying it. So, yeah, Griffin. What's up? How's your career going now? Uh, it's going pretty well. My career is, uh, I don't even know, something. Um, but I, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I've now added to my repertoire is, uh, you know, all that talk of Star Wars earlier uh, yeah. inspired me to go to go back to school and get my Jedi license. Oh, good for you. Wait, come so on. now I am the official Jedi Knight of Are Your Parents Proud of You? 
May, may the force be with you, Matt. The force is strong with that one, buddy. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Speaking of hell yeah, next week, we're going to have artistic director for Echo Theater Collective, Maui Jones, a community theater for social change. Nice. Yeah, I can't wait. That'll be fun. It will be great. Speaking of fun and great, our email at Parents Proud Podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, that's our I, at Parents Proud Podcast. Yes, at, yes. You can find us at Parents Proud Podcast on Instagram okay. and Facebook. And uh, we don't have a Twitter, do we? We do not have a Twitter. We don't hashtag oh. around here. Okay. We should make a Twitter. That would be fun. You want to be in charge of that, Griffin? No. <laughs> okay. There, so we won't then. But you can email us at Parents Proud Podcast at gmail.com we look forward yes to your emails please please give us strength with your emails they feed my soul those emails folks that is it for today's episode please remember wear a mask socially distant go vote 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 o rama people please please vote please vote. all right all right Stay strong, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.